Ezra chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 1. We'll be be looking at more of this story, but uh, we will read the first four verses together this morning. Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who've been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Consider the following scenarios and consider what they may have in common. Every time he puts money in somebody's hands, he says he will pay them back. I'll pay you back as soon as I can. That's always what he tells people, but he never does. How about this one? I tell him all the time, When he needs to show up, he promises me he'll be ready, he'll show up on time. Don't worry, he says, this time it'll be different. And in fact, it turns out exactly the same way. Always shows up late. How about this one? It's a little more serious. He tells himself, this is the last time. He'll never drink again. But something inside of him knows that when he gets stressed out, when life gets hard, he'll turn to a bottle. Just one little drink, he'll say. What's the harm? And once again, he'll find himself going down a path he said he would never do again. One more. He knows he shouldn't be watching it. Seems like every time he sits down to the computer, he knows where the clicking will eventually take him. He knows it's wrong. He's made a promise on many occasions. He'll never do it again. Only to find himself by himself on the computer, clicking away again to places he should not be. What what do all of these scenarios have in common? Though they, they have varying levels of intensity to them, they all describe someone saying one thing, but doing another. A problem that is universal, a problem that shows up in every human being in every culture throughout all of human history, There's never been an exception to this. Those 
who recognize their actions, activities that they need to stop, they use the words, they communicate in some form or fashion, I shouldn't be doing it this way. Making a promise to stop only to find those words of promise to be hollow. And what they said they wouldn't do, they do again. We have a variety of ways to describe this, or at least to deal with this, this issue, and, and, and really our, our uh, discomfort with it. We might say something to someone who always seems to say more than they do. Well, actions speak louder than words, right? Uh, maybe if it's a circumstance where someone is always, you know, making big and, and, and perhaps audacious kinds of promises, you might say something like, well, if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. There's a third phrase. If we want to get really pinpointed on somebody's issue, we might get frustrated enough where we look at them and say, well, the only thing you are giving me is lip service. Yeah, we're familiar with these phrases, right? And not just because we know folks, we can think of scenarios in which people we know have said more than they did but because it's also the one staring us back in the mirror who does it to. I mean, we all find ourselves in this kind of a circumstance, and, and, and when it comes to, to us as believers, this seems to take on maybe even another level of intensity, a depth of concern, because when we talk about this kind of an issue, not following up on promises that we made, it's not just an issue that's internal and with me and my problem, or even just an issue with one another, with, with you, a church family, or friends, or co-workers, or, or a family. We recognize this problem then is, is vertical. We've got a divine issue that when we make promises we don't keep, it's saying something to God Himself. It, it can be a really discouraging Reality, right? That we make promises and don't keep them. Uh, now, I, I think this is the issue then that confronts us this morning as we continue in the story of this group of exiles under the leadership of Ezra who have returned back to Jerusalem some 80 years after the temple has already been completed. And upon arrival, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 9, Ezra finds out not all is well with God's people. Rather than living in fidelity to God's covenant, obeying all of the, the commands and enjoying all the promises of God, they have once again done something that generation after generation of Israelites have done and gotten in trouble for. Their very forefathers were exiled from the land for this. They intermarried. Rather than remaining separated from the pagan nations around them, rather than obeying a very explicit command from God, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor should your sons take their daughters as wives. And God's concern was really simple. Didn't have anything to do with race, ethnicity, that was not God's concern at all. It had everything to do with faith, with theology, with worship, 
with obedience. Deuteronomy 7 is an example. He made it very clear. In the day that you do this, you will invite corruption, not only upon yourself, but for generations to follow. But this is what Ezra finds as he gets to Jerusalem. But the folks have once again intermarried. Or at the very least have taken on ungodly, unhealthy, unlawful relationships with the pagan nations around them. And and as we've been walking our way through this last story, we've been doing so kind of from this perspective, what this really illustrates for us as God's people, it illustrates the dangers of worldliness, of allowing ourselves to adopt or at least flirt with or kind of connect with the values, principles, and ideals of the world system that stands at odds with God, His principles, His Word, what it means to be in Christ, Spirit-filled believers, loving and living His Word. It, 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 is, it is an illustration of the dangers, then, of allowing ourselves to, to, to be of the world rather than just being in the world. And when we look at the story, I think we find that this, this presents us with one of the greatest threats to Christian living, one of the greatest threats to God's people, one of the greatest threats to the church, and that is the threat of worldliness. So how do we manage it? What do we do about this? Well, Ezra 9 and 10 give us a great illustration of what it looks like to rightly respond to the presence of worldliness. Now, we've already looked at two of these. Over the last few weeks, we looked at chapter 9. As Ezra becomes aware of this and as Ezra engages... Uh, in prayer and contrition and um, responds in the right way, we see that there there are two ways he responded in chapter 9. The first was conviction, contrition. We put those two together. In other words, he he felt the weight of the grief of the sin. It was genuine. Then he expressed genuine confession, owned up to the sin, recognized it for what it was. Now, this morning, we're going to begin to look at number three, the third step. And I I think one that that really makes it real, perhaps could be as challenging as any of them, and that is correction. Correction. It really deals with, I think, a question that may come up in regard to the first two. If, if my contrition is genuine and my confession is genuine, how do I know? How do I know that these things are real? How do I know that I really have felt the weight of my sin? How do I know that I've really honestly dealt with God in my sin and, and or with others, depending on the circumstances? How do I know this is the case? Because there will be a correction. In other words, it's not just going to be lip service. It's important that we move from lip service to life surrender. Not just making the same old promises again, but in fact committing ourselves to a course of action that follows up on the promises that we're making. So here's what what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this story, and then depending on how long that may take, all right, we will have some points that will provide us with maybe some direction, some ways to respond rightly uh, to our sin so that we can move in the right direction of correcting it. So begin looking in verse 1 again of chapter 10. 
Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men and children gathered him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. Now, just I, I want you to put your, in mind then the story. So chapter 9, Ezra becomes aware of the intermarriage that's going on. He goes to the temple. He's in like the, the, the outer court that would have been accessible to the most people. There are others who are with him. And Ezra's response is one of just pure grief, bitter, bitter grief over the sins of the people, which if you recall, he owns for himself. Ezra doesn't say, I live among really wicked people. I myself, though, am top-notch, as good as they get. But all these other knuckleheads, yeah, they're the ones engaging in sin. That's, that's not how Ezra prays might be the way we might be tempted to pray sometimes, right? But that's not how Ezra does it. Ezra simply owns the sin himself. He uses language like we. We have done this. We have offended God. We have disobeyed. So Ezra has gathered, taken on ownership of the sin, and here's what's happening. Others are with him, and I am convinced that if you go back and read chapter 9, I am convinced... Ezra is praying out loud. This is not some kind of internal thing where we have access to his thoughts. Ezra is in the courtyard of the temple, and he is out loud praying. There are people with him. They are also, and by the way, we just have an example of a prayer. You can tell from this chapter, he does this for hours. This is going on for hours. So here in a little bit, don't go looking at your watch, all right? Because this could take a lot longer, all right? It's all a matter of perspective. Here's what clearly is happening, because chapter 10 then gives us this transition. As he's doing this, as he's weeping, as he's praying, as they're crying out to God, and the others who are around him are doing the same thing, people begin to take notice. He's in a very public place. He's doing this prayer in a very public way. Other people see. Ezra was a man of standing. I mean, this, they knew this guy. He was prominent, significant, important, influential. And here he is weeping, and so it draws attention. And people begin to assemble. And my guess is, as it, it kind of took on a life of its own, as more people are gathering, and as the sounds grow louder, and as maybe word begins to spread, we learn that eventually, we don't know how long it takes, but at some point, it says then, a very large assembly of men, women, and children have gathered around him, and that they're weeping bitterly. It's really an amazing story, mainly because the, the, the response that is required in order to see movement against their sin, in order to do something about the dangerous circumstance they find themselves in, which it would be helpful for us to remember, the reason why something like worldliness is so dangerous is because the single greatest threat to any human being is God Himself. We've walked through this theology before, so I'm not going to do it again today, but if you'd like to talk more about it, I'll be available at the end of the service, all right? 
But I think this is exactly what Jesus taught as well. So God himself is the concern. And and they don't need to be cajoled. They don't need to be preached at. Sometimes God's people need to be preached at, but in this case, they don't. They just need to hear the prayer and the grief and the bitterness of Ezra, perhaps even hearing him own the sin himself for the sin of the nation. They, they all then are just in utter grief over where they find themselves. This, this again, by the way, just reaffirms the points we've already done. Here we find genuine contrition. I, I would contend then that what's in the midst of this is also personal by each of the individuals and now this full nationwide kind of confession. But now you know something is really up, because look what happens in verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jael, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We've trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for this in Israel. So Shechaniah, who is he? I don't know. I think that's why it matters. His name doesn't show up, by the way. The end of this chapter, you want to talk about naming names, all right? You, what's going to happen is all the people who enter married are going to have, they're going to have their names named, all right? All of them are going to be named. That's what the end of this chapter is. All of those engaged in this sin, there's going to be a, Ezra's a scribe, he's going to write it down. He's going to record the sins of the people, of these people, all right? Which is, that's going to be a whole nother part of a sermon, all right? I know that might make you nervous, so just hold on. You're thinking, oh, uh, what Sunday is that going to be? Because you're thinking, he may call me out. All right, that's not going to be next Sunday, but it may be some other time. All right, so that should be fun for the spring, the rest of the spring. Shechaniah doesn't show up in here. So has he intermarried? Well, his name doesn't show up, so maybe not. Whoever he is, though, he must be a man of influence. And what is significant about this, this isn't just Ezra. You know, people aren't in this large assembly thinking, oh, there goes, there goes the preacher again. <laughs> you know, that's just kind of what he does. Okay, and then we go off and go to Bojangles and everything's good. All right, no, this is not Ezra just being Ezra. Shechaniah then stands up and says, we've done this thing. We've grieved the Lord. We've sinned by intermarrying. We have violated God's command. But then he offers this interesting statement. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. See, that's good, because if you remember chapter 9, Ezra didn't give us a whole lot of hope. Chapter 9 really ends with like Ezra saying, here's all the bad stuff we've done, and really maybe God should wipe us all out. That's kind of how it ends, saying, in other words, throwing himself at the mercy of God. That God, here's what we deserve. It's up to you. You are the God. You are the Lord. And so we trust ourselves into your hands. Shechaniah, though, he, he's the guy you like following him up, okay? He's the guy who comes after, you know, the, the prophet beaten away and says, all right, yes, everything he just said is true, but I also want you to know there's hope in this. See, this is the best part of the whole thing. If it ends in chapter 9, whew, Ezra's a tough book. But instead, what does Shechaniah do for us? He gives us a glimpse of the promise of God's grace. 
Even now, and this is what makes it so amazing, even in the face of this, even in the face of a sin they knew they shouldn't commit, and they have ample historical evidence that they shouldn't have done this. They have story after story after story going all the way back to the time of Joshua and then the judges. So it's not like they had like one or two outliers here. I mean, they had an entire history of the people of God. Don't do this. And they do it. That's why Ezra says, maybe this is it. Maybe God won't save anybody this time. Maybe his judgment will be total. And the people of God will be no more. But Shechaniah comes along and says, no. It's not how this is going to end. There is hope that God, even in His grace, even in the midst of our great sin, reminds us that His grace is greater still. And that God's people can enjoy restoration, forgiveness. We can be brought back into right fellowship with God. Our sin does not have to be the last line of our story. Is that not good news? Now, it doesn't mean we've got to, we can ignore it. What we want to do is focus on the last line that he just read, right? There's now hope in Israel. Mm, but that's not what happens. I mean, there is hope. To get there, you've still got to do the hard work. And so in verse 3, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who've been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. And somebody else is speaking to us. You know, that happens every now and then, and so we'll wait for Siri to be done correcting my sermon. You know, check your phones. I mean, you'll end up in a list just like Ezra chapter 10, all right? I, I'll make the rules. I just follow the Bible, okay? That's clearly what we're going to have to do. So, so, so Shechaniah says, so here's what we've done. We've got to make a promise before God. We've got to make a covenant with God. And notice what he says to do. We've got to put these wives away. These wives and the children that have come from them. And Ezra, you lead us in it. We're with you, but you take responsibility and do this thing. We, we've got to remove the sin. Now, I want to say a couple of things here. One, note how extreme the action is. This, is how, this shows you, Shechaniah is serious here. He recognizes this is real sin. There is real hope in Israel regarding this matter, but they do have to address their sin and the seriousness of it. Put the wives away. Now, here's where we run into a problem. And here, here's why, you know, this sermon, this particular one, obviously will come in two parts. Because when we read that, you might have even thought it when we read it just a moment ago, and you're thinking it now, wait a minute. Put the wives and children away? I, I mean, I, I get extreme. I get you got to take action, but come on. That, that seems a little too extreme. I mean, Pastor, doesn't the Bible say God hates divorce? In fact, it was a contemporary prophet of Ezra and Nehemiah, Malachi, who says this. God hates divorce, okay? But Pastor, 
is this guy saying we're going to make a covenant with God and we're going to do this according to the law? Notice how he said that? We're going to do it according to the law? Is, is what he's saying, is he saying now there's going to have to be a wholesale divorce among God's people, that they're going to have to divorce all of these women and, and then chuck all the kids to the curb and that's it? So there's a couple of options here. One, you'll notice as we've read about this story, that the language used, though the women are called wives, the language used about taking them and then putting them away suggests to many commentators that I have a lot of respect for that in fact what they have done is not engaged in formal marriages with these women, as in before God, like I mean, they wouldn't have gone into a church, but you know what I mean, like, right? Pastor saying, I, you know, do you, I do, do you, I do, yes. They're, therefore, I now pronounce you husband and wife. That they weren't engaging in that formal covenantal commitment. Then instead, it was like common law. Living together. That that's what they were doing. That they had taken on these women. They had taken them as if they were wives. Had children with them. But but in fact, these were not real, formal, legal marriages. And thus, the instruction being given, we're going to get back to the law. And to get back to the law means we are going to get rid of these illicit relationships. We're going to remove this from us. We're going to remove the women and the children. And and again, this, this extreme action being called for because of the extremity of their sin. Now, others, though, will point out, no, this was marriage, this was the real thing, um, but this, this is a one-time deal, meaning this is, this is an unusual set of circumstances. Uh, it involved the, you know, the, a, a lot of people in Israel, and so extreme actions were taken. This particular position then even went a little bit further and says, uh, and they probably went on to take care of these women and children. The text doesn't ever say that, by the way. But that is what is suggested, that perhaps they then went on to take care of them. They just didn't live anymore um, as husband and wife. Now, I, I would contend, I've, I've read both of these options. These seem to be the primary ones. Both of them are people I respect, and, um, and, and I think they all would fit the bill. I prefer the first, if you want to know my Two cents worth, all right? That perhaps this is something less than the fullness of marriage that you and I know and understand. And, and so what they have done is kind of doubled down on their sin. They, they've engaged in intermarriages, but not marriage according to the law or how God would prescribe marriage to be done or what he'd expect from his people. And, and so instead of engaged in this kind of living together, common law kind of approach to things. And, and so... He's telling them to take extreme action here. Remove it. And this is what I don't want to get lost. In that debate, which I'd be, you know, we'd be glad to talk more about that, but, but we, we don't want to lose sight of that, which is clearly a problem. I mean, in other words, that is a critical issue of the text, but that's not the primary point of the text, to make an argument about marriage and divorce. This is not the point of the text. It's not prescribing something. So I want to make that clear to you, by the way. If... All right. Nobody better come up to me and say, well, my spouse is this, this, or this, and based on Ezra, we're going to get a divorce. You're going to hear a different pastor. All right. If you come up to me and tell me that kind of stuff, that's going to be a hard conversation for both of us um, and um, might end up in, in, in one of us leaving. All right. Um, 
but to, to tell you probably who that'd be. So, so that's going to be different, difficult. So do not do that. That is not what this passage is talking about. Instead, the focus is on this is a serious, deadly sin condition, and you need to deal with it seriously. Stop playing around with it. I, I think this is an important then way to think about what, what's about to happen because, because they're going to engage in a very concrete plan of action to do this. And we won't get to it until next time, all right? But we will, we will get to it. But I think this is, this is an important and may, maybe critical place to end. We're really almost in between points one and two and three. That there needs to be real contrition and real confession and a commitment to real correction. But before we can correct the sin problem, we need to own how serious God is about the problem of sin. And I don't think we always do that. And, and when I say we, I mean we. I, I mean we. I, I'm Ezra and, I mean, I mean, I'm not, but you know what I'm saying. Like, I, I don't want you to think, oh, well, the pastor's up there. He's perfect. He's got everything together. You, you want to hear somebody who can talk himself into all kinds of I mean, I can justify, you don't, you, don't have, uh, you don't have a candle to my ability to justify stuff. And that may be a weird thing to say because now you're thinking, oh, what's the pastor doing, all right, that, that he's engaged in these things. I just mean the ability we have to call our sin something else other than sin to make us feel bad for literally offending a holy God. It is profound. Our ability to do this is profound. The evangelical world has bought into this wholesale. Bought into it wholesale by saying things like, well, we're, we're just a broken people. I even hear people, and we've talked about this before, I hear people say things like, well, you know, we're, we're just big, beautiful, broken messes. And they, and they glory in their brokenness. And they use cutesy little trite cliches. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. Here's what I want you to do. And this will come, this will come up to us the next Sunday as we take the Lord's Supper together. I want you to look with the mind's eye at the cross of Jesus Christ. And you tell me your sin is just you being a big, beautiful, broken mess. Is that what the cross tells me? I don't think so. The cross tells me that my sin is so deep and so profound and so dark and so rebellious and so offensive to God that the only way it gets solved is by God taking on human flesh and dying in my place. Look to the cross. Look to a body that was broken and blood that was shed to see what God thinks about sin. We look at this and we think, wow, that is extreme. Not nearly as extreme as crucifying the Son of God. See, that reminds us, sin is a serious thing. And so before we can really move forward in correction, I think we need to take seriously then the presence of sin in our lives. Call it what it is and react to it as God's Word would tell us to react to it. But then to move one step further... 
Because, because I, I do want to leave today. Give, there is hope for this in Israel, all right? To move one step further, that Jesus' death on the cross was not just as some example for how sinful we are, though it does exemplify that. Jesus' death on the cross was the means by which our sin could be dealt with and our relationship with God made possible. In other words, there is a way out of sin. There is a way to be forgiven. There is a way to know fellowship with God, and it comes at the cross of Jesus Christ. To those who are here and and you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, understand that part of what I'm talking about doesn't really apply to you in exactly the same way. What I mean is this. If you are an unbeliever, you stand in opposition to God, and all that God will bring to you is wrath and judgment. You will pay the penalty for your own sin, and that price will be paid for eternity. I know that's a hard message. It's the bad news, but the good news is, is that those who confess that they are sinners, those who believe what the Scripture says, we read them. Those who believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead can be saved. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be made right with God. If you've never trusted in Him, I would implore you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to place your faith in Him and Him alone. This is the only way that you can be made right with God, trusting in Him, His crucifixion and resurrection. The pastors will be down front at the end of this service. We'll have an opportunity, should you like to, to talk more about it. We'd love to be able to do that. To those who are here and you say, no, I'm a believer. I've done that. I've, I've trusted in Christ. I, I wish I could say, once you believe in Jesus, you'll never sin again. Boy, I'd be really successful, right? I mean, if I could write a book about that, if that could be the thing, my goodness. That's just not how it works. No, we are going to be a people who make a promise to God and break those promises. We're going to say never again, and we'll do it again. There's, we'll say, no, I'm going to walk forward in faith and obedience and never, never go back. No, there, there may be a couple of steps taken back as you make one step forward or two steps forward and one back. That, that is the nature of Christian living. Do not treat your sin as if it is just a minor bit of brokenness, a personality defect, some kind of little thing that requires no attention. Listen, my sin is not a pet. It's like a cockroach, and cockroaches flee when the light comes on. That's what we need to do with it. Be honest and open before the Lord. Contrite, confess, so that we might correct. And take advantage then of the resources of God's grace. To be saved as God's people, recognizing that's what He's done for us in Christ, and then the ongoing provision of grace to deal with sin and walk forward in faith and obedience to Him. Will we respond once again to God and His Word, recognizing our sin and moving forward to correct it as God by His grace would enable? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. After I pray, we will sing together, continuing to share our gratitude to God for the goodness of His saving work. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank You for the gathering of Your people. We're privileged to be able to come together in Your name. We thank You for Your Word, and we thank You, though at times it is hard and, and does serious heart and mind work, we are thankful that, that You, by Your Spirit, bring that Word to bear, and we are thankful that You have provided us then the solution to the sin problem in Christ and the means by which we can be made right with You and continue to walk in fellowship with You. And so we pray that you, by your Spirit, would continue to do that work in us, bringing this Word to bear on our lives, that it might bear good fruit, and that we might see ourselves continuing to live in faith and holiness, 
separated from the world, being in the world but not of it, doing more than just making promises, but seeing our lives as that which is surrendered to you and to your good purposes, and that you would be glorified by the work you accomplish in your people. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>